Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. If you have a Bible, open it with me to Jeremiah chapter 35. Jeremiah chapter 35. As you're turning there, I, I want to make just a quick announcement that we are needing more Kidmen volunteers. Um, so it's, you know, back to school time. A lot, of, a lot of families are starting to come back in from the summer and things like that. So we really need more people to step in and serve. And so I would love it if you would, if you would think about it, pray about it, except for not really even, you don't have to do those things. We just need volunteers and the Lord says to serve. And so um, you can get signed up outside, uh, actually right out that way through those doors. There's a table. Cindy Vickers will, will help you get signed up to serve. So I feel like I've got kind of your attention right now, maybe more so than whenever I do little announcements. Um, Maybe you're wondering why I'm holding this this bottle of wine. Anybody wondering, like what? I've never seen that before in a Baptist church on stage. I just thought it would be fun this morning if we could just maybe just pop this bad boy open, pour a little bit. Um, If anybody wants some, we could we could do that. So I've got some I've got some glasses. This is a this is a great. it's 2021, which I hear, great year for wine. Um, it's an Italian uh, brand, uh, Coupa Cake, I believe, is the name. Some of you are really familiar. Um, Pinot Noir, that's, that's what this is. And so I just thought, you know, we could just, ooh, it's got the twist off top, so you know that it's nice. And so I just thought that we could pour some of this up. Any, anybody? No? That was a test, all right, and you passed. That was a test. Some of you are like, what the mess is going on right now? If you're new, you're like, do they always start sermons with wine? And the answer is no, we don't. Um, but to quote the great OU quarterback, Baker Mayfield, I just woke up feeling a little dangerous this morning. <laughs> woke up feeling a little dangerous, and so that's, that's what we're doing. Actually, not at all. I'm super nervous to even be holding this on stage right now. I, I called um, one of our deacons, um, Donnie Wells, this week, and I was like, hey man, I'm thinking about, you know, is this a good idea? He's like, that's a fantastic idea. I'll go to the liquor store and buy a bottle for you. So our oldest deacon actually went and he bought this for me. Um, and so you're like, what is going on? I really don't know either. Actually, I do. Jeremiah chapter 35 starts exactly this way. Jeremiah chapter 35, God tells Jeremiah to bring people into the temple pour out some wine and offer it, right? And it's like, that is strange. It's strange. And so immediately we learn God's not Baptist, right? Because he tells them to do that. But I think what he's trying to do is he's intentionally trying to set a scene. Like that grabs your attention, doesn't it? And that's what God was trying to do in Jeremiah chapter 35. So hopefully you've turned there by now. You can relax. We're not talking about alcohol this morning, right? We're going to be talking about this text, and it just has to do with the example of of wine. But in Jeremiah chapter 35, verse 2 kind of shows us exactly what's happening. God gives some instructions to Jeremiah, and he says this, Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them, 
and bring them to one of the chambers of the temple of the Lord to offer them a drink of wine. All right, I don't know how many of you have studied this passage. It's a pretty, I've never, I've read through the Bible multiple times and this one is like, I got to it this week. I was like, wow, I don't know that I've ever heard that story before. It's an interesting story. God is setting a scene. He wants a lot of people in the temple because he's gonna make a point. Now, before we get into reading the text, there's two things that you need to know about this passage. First, it's, it's out of order chronologically. Jeremiah's writing isn't like linear. Um, he, he's not trying to teach you history at this point. He, he's trying to make a point. So Jeremiah chapter 35 actually comes before what we've talked about the last two weeks where the people were in exile, All right? So, so Jeremiah 35 happens before uh, that takes place. The second thing that you need to know about this passage is that it's about a family. It, it, it talks about this family called the Rechabites. And honestly, we don't know a whole, whole lot about this group of people. They're a, a nomadic type of people. They travel around. They, they come from a long lineage um, that, that stems from this guy named Rechab, which that's how they came up with family names back in the day. You just add I-T-E to the end of whoever the oldest person in the family is, and that's now your family name. So like my family, years from now, would be the Davidites. And so, I don't know, that's a fun game. You can figure out what your family lineage name would be. Just add I-T-E. And so they come from a guy named Rechab. There's a guy who's specifically mentioned in this passage who is of the line of Rechab, uh, a guy named uh, Jonadab. And Jonadab is kind of, he he lived 200 years before Jeremiah chapter 35 takes place. And he had a way of living, a system. He had these principles and ideas, this way of living that has been passed down and kept by his family for over two centuries. 200 years, they've been keeping this this rule. And, And the main point, all right, the main point of this text and of this passage and of our time together is God is gonna use the example of the, of the faithfulness of the Rechabites in order to teach his people about their lack of commitment, okay? He's teaching his people about their lack of commitment. I think that's gonna also hit us right where we sit today as well. Before we jump into the text, I'd like for us just to pray together. So I'm gonna pray for all of us. You pray for yourself. Ask God to speak to you in this, in this moment. God, would you use this time and would you speak to us in a way that only you can? Would we leave here more faithful to you than, than when we came in these doors? Would you help us? Would you help us to see how we are to respond? Would you help us to see Jesus and his grace and his love for us this morning? And would you illuminate this text and help us to follow you? It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, Jeremiah chapter 35, start in verse five with me. He says, Jeremiah has been told, right, to to set out the wine before the Rechabites. Verse five, I set jars filled with wine and some cups before the sons of the house of the Rechabites and said to them, drink wine. But they replied, we do not drink wine. For Jonadab, son of our ancestor Rechab, commanded, you and your descendants must never drink wine. You must not build a house or sow seed or plant a vineyard. Those things are not for you. Rather, you must live in tents your whole life so you may live a long time on the soil where you, have, where you stay as a resident alien. We have obeyed Jonadab, son of our ancestor Rechab, in all he commanded us. So we haven't drunk wine our whole life. We, our wives, our sons, and our daughters. We also have not built houses to live in, and we do not have vineyard filled or seed. 
But we have lived in tents and have obeyed and done everything our ancestor Jonadab commanded us. However, when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched into the land, we said, come, let's go into Jerusalem to get away from the Chaldean and Aramean armies. So we have been living in Jerusalem. Verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel says. Go, say to the men of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem, will you not accept discipline by listening to my words? This is the Lord's declaration. The words of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have been carried out. He commanded his descendants not to drink wine and they have not drunk to this day because they have obeyed their ancestors' command. But I have spoken to you time and time again and you have not obeyed me. Time and time again, I've sent you all my servants, the prophets, proclaiming, turn each one of you from his evil way and correct your actions. Stop following other gods to serve them. Live in the land that I gave you and your ancestors, but you did not pay attention or obey me. Yes, the sons of Jonadab, son of Rechab, carried out their ancestors' command he gave them, but these people have not obeyed me. I know that's a lot to read, but I want us just to walk through this text that we're probably unfamiliar with, and, and we're gonna see what happened to them and how it applies to our life as well. The, the lesson he is teaching the people of Judah and Jerusalem is the same lesson he's teaching us today. So first, let's just walk through the text. Verses six through 10, we see this scene takes place. Jeremiah goes into the temple, he sits the wine in front of them, and he invites them to drink it, verse five. Right? And they say, nope. We don't drink wine. And so in that, we learn that the Rechabites are not Baptists either because they say they don't drink wine and they actually mean it, right? And so here's, here's the thing. God knew, he knew that they didn't drink and that they would be faithful. Don't miss that. Like God was, he, he was confident in their commitment. Wouldn't you love for God to say the same about you? He was, he'd just be so confident in your commitment level to, to the things, your principles and your, your convictions that he knew that he could set something in front of you and you were gonna be an example to others on faithfulness. That's what he's doing here with the Rechabites. So it's an important note. God was not tempting the Rechabites. He knew that they were gonna be faithful. In fact, James 1.13 tells us God doesn't tempt us. James 1.13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. So he's not tempting the Rechabites. He knows that they're going to be faithful. He's using them to teach his people a lesson. So it's not temptation of the Rechabites. It's teaching the people of Judah a lesson. But the question is, and I know you're probably asking it, like, why wouldn't they drink the wine? It's not that big of a deal. God never commanded that they couldn't drink the wine. Sure, scripture is clear on drunkenness and all that, but it doesn't explicitly say like you should never drink wine. Like why would they hold to that belief? And here's the reason. Because grandpa was against it. Grandpa was against it. How many of you have just learned a ton from your grandpa over the years? Should be most of us, right? I've learned a ton from my grandpa. All things from construction and, and handyman type of tips to, to sports advice and even preaching and pastoring. He was a pastor for nearly 50 years. And so I've just learned a ton from him over the years and talking about life and ministry and different things. And that's, that's true for all of us. We pick up all kinds of things from grandpa. 
Your sayings, you know, you have some little sayings that you have. They probably came from grandpa. Your facial expressions, your quirks, your traditions, your wisdom. A lot of those things, you can be tracing it back to, to grandpa. A lot of who we are and even where we are locationally comes from grandpa. Something else that's true about grandpas is you usually know exactly where they stand on issues, don't you? <laughs> Like something happens along the way. I'm not sure what age it is in men, but somewhere along the way, that, that filter in a, in a man just seems to kind of deteriorate a little bit. And so you don't have to wonder where grandpa stands on an issue, do you? You know. You know where he stands. And grandpa Jonadab, this guy who lived 200 years before this scene in Jeremiah chapter 35, he had rules. And his rules were, we're going to abstain from alcohol we're not gonna plant any vineyards or gardens and we're not gonna live in permanent built homes. Those were his rules. And it's like, why did he have those rules? We don't really know why. Like, we're not told why the rules were, were there. We just know that, that they were. We're actually only told about this guy named Jonadab two times in scripture. One is here in Jeremiah 35 and the other one comes in 2 Kings chapter 10. And if you're looking for something exciting to read this afternoon, check out 2 Kings chapter 10. It is a bloody chapter. I mean, it's brutal. In this, in this section of scripture, in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10 in that area, uh, this guy named King, uh, uh, oh goodness, what is, this? What is his name? Uh, Jehu. I had something else, it wasn't right. King Jehu, he's going through and he's just slaughtering all kinds of people. And... Um, and it's, it's, it's a bloody scene. And in and, and 2 Kings chapter, uh, chapter uh, goodness, I'm all flustered right now, chapter 10, he goes in and he, he rounds up all of the people who worship Baal. Baal is a, a false god that was worshiped in the region. And so he, he rounds up all the people who worship Baal in Israel, puts them in this room, says, we're gonna have a worship service to Baal but he's tricking them, he locks the doors, and they go through and slaughter all of the Baal worshipers in Israel. That's the scene in 2 Kings chapter 10. And in that moment, there's two verses that say a guy was there helping him, this guy named Jonadab. And so that's where he comes from. And so we're not sure why he has the rules that he has or why he has the personal convictions about no wine and no gardens and no permanent homes, but perhaps, this is speculation, perhaps he had these personal convictions and so he set up these safeguards in his life because he had seen the, the, the ramifications of idol worship. He was a part of, of eliminating idol worship out of Israel and maybe he's setting up these safeguards in his own life. It, it's a lot where like the, the convictions about we don't, we don't dance and we don't play cards and all that it comes from like the saloon days and so we're just gonna stay away from all that kind of stuff. Maybe that's what's happening here. Maybe you just had personal convictions. I'm setting up safeguards so that I don't stray beyond them into idol worship. We're not really sure. But the point here in this passage is not on their rules. The point is on their commitment to grandpa. He had rules and, and we're gonna follow them. We're, we're committed, we are faithful to his rules. So, so don't get it twisted here. God does not care about the specifics of the rules that they're following. God cares about their faithfulness, right? That's what, he's, that's what he's focusing on. So this story isn't a story for or against alcohol. This isn't a story for or against planting gardens or it's not a story for or against having a permanent home. Jeremiah isn't concerned with what the rules say or why they follow him. He's only concerned with the fact that they do follow them, okay? 
That's the point. The Rechabites were true to their principles and values despite what was set right in front of them. So that's the scene. And then we see that God had a plan for this scene. And his whole purpose was to teach the people of Judah and Jerusalem a lesson. And what is the lesson? You see it in verses 12 through 16. Essentially, it's this. They follow grandpa better than you follow me. They're following these rules of this man, King jo- or Jonadab, better than you follow me. It's found in verse 14. It's a perfect summary of this whole whole scene that's happening. Look at verse 14 again. The words of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have been carried out. He commanded his descendants not to drink wine, and they have not drunk to this day because they have obeyed their ancestors' command. But I have spoken to you time and time again, and you have not obeyed me. See, they're following this man, this dude who's been dead and buried for (laughs) centuries, They're following his command and God's saying, and you won't follow me? I'm the Lord of armies, he calls himself in this passage. I'm the God of all creation, you won't follow me? That's the point that he's making. And in a way, what he's teaching us is that God's laws are far more important than man's traditions. Like, you're following just traditions of grandpa and not not me, right? God's laws are far more important than man's traditions. And I know that we know that, like cognitively, In our minds, we know our traditions are not nearly as important as God's laws and commands, but so often we see that get twisted, don't we? Where our traditions and our preferences are given priority over God's ways. The way that we see it primarily is is it takes place whenever things, uh, things in the church that we'll fight over. The things that we fight over in the church usually aren't God's decrees. They're usually preferences and traditions, aren't they? So for example, uh, sometimes people will get twisted or they'll get sideways. There are people who, thankfully not at this campus, but there are people who will get angry over the kinds of songs that, that a worship band will sing or the songs that they don't sing. I'd rather more traditional hymns and I want you to sing them the way grandpa used to sing them, you know? Like people will get all kinds of twisted over that and not think twice about the fact that they haven't shared the gospel with anyone in years so focused on our traditions and the way that grandpa used to do it more than the things that Christ is calling us to today. And I want you to hear, there's nothing wrong at all with preferences. You should have them. You probably do have preferences and opinions. There's nothing wrong with those things at all, but it is dangerous ground when we allow our traditions and our preferences to take priority over God's commands. We've got to remember what he's calling us to today trumps our preferences, and our opinions, and our traditions. He's called us to commit our ways and to commit fully to them, not half-hearted, but all in on what he's teaching us. And, and that's, that's what's happening here in this passage. God is teaching the Israelites this, that essentially he's saying, it's possible. I know that this world pressures you, and I know that you face all kinds of different things, but it's possible to live with principles and convictions in this world. And if you want proof, look at the Rechabites. That's what God is saying here. And for us, that's extremely practical, isn't it? Because I know that we face all kinds of pressures. We face all kinds of things where it's hard to stick to our principles and our convictions and the way that God teaches us to live and his commands for our lives. Like, I know that we face those challenges as well, but God is teaching us it's possible to live with principles and convictions in this world. It is. So very practically, students, I know that in your schools and on your campuses, you are faced with all kinds of pressures and temptations. 
I know that you are. And you're facing stuff that honestly I never had to face whenever I was your age. Like when I was in high school, social media didn't exist. And so the things that you are facing now, the things that you constantly have at your fingertips, the, the temptations and the pressures that you always have on you, even in your bedroom late at night, like I know that you face real pressures and real challenges today. And so it is extremely important for you to know that God is calling you to be firm on your convictions. He's calling you to be firm on your principles and the things that he is calling you to. You're called to be all in. Not like one foot in, one foot out. Because on your campuses and on your school, if you're living one foot in with Christ and one foot in the world, that does no one any good. You know, if they see you doing the same things they do, saying the same things that they say, going the same places that, that they go, why do they need your Jesus? You're called to be salt and light in this world. And salt makes things better. It adds flavor to the room. Light invades the darkness. That's what you're called to do. And so you're called to be firm on your convictions and stand on them even when it's not easy. And just say, no, I'm not gonna participate in that. Christ is better, he's called me to a different way and that's what I'm about. I promise you, if you do that on your campuses, you'll be a difference maker. If you go one foot in, one foot out, you're just gonna blend in with the crowd. But he's calling us to more. Adults, same message is true for us. Like in your circles, in your, in your work, in your friend group, God is calling you and he's saying it's possible to live fully committed to the Lord even when others aren't. It's fully possible. Parents, like in your parenting, it's possible to hold to your commitments to the Lord when no one else is. Like think of the legacy of Jonadab. This guy, he lived 200 years before and they're still keeping his principles. They're still keeping his way of life. He's had that much of an impact on his family. Don't you want that kind of legacy? Don't you want that? It doesn't come through half-hearted obedience. It doesn't come through one foot in, one foot out type of parenting. So ask yourself, what kind of, of, of commitment are you modeling to your kids? Are you teaching your kids that it's fine to be loose with your commitments to the Lord? Because everybody else seems to be doing so, so it's fine. Is that, what, is that the kind of legacy that you want? What are your kids learning today that they're going to pass down to your grandkids? And they're going to pass down to their kids? What kind of legacy are you building? Are you building a half-hearted commitment to the Lord into your family? See, I believe, I believe one of the biggest challenges that the church faces today is not the, the pressures that come from the outside. It's not the cultural issues that we face today. And I know like absolute truth is being challenged on every level. And, and I know that there's issues of sexuality and gender that are, seem to be right at the front door. And I know that we're facing those, but can I tell you, I don't think the biggest challenge that we face as a church is the pressure coming from the outside. I think the biggest challenge is happening on the inside. I think our biggest challenge of the church is the half-hearted commitment of the people of God to the things of God. We're just half-hearted. We're loose on our commitments. Just one foot in, one foot out. And so what is the application in this text for us? Here's what I think it is. What you really believe shows up in how you live. What you really believe shows up in how you live. And we see that clearly in this text. There's a, there's a positive example in the Rechabites, and there's a negative example in the people of God. 
the people of Judah. And so I just want to, like, I'm just going to give you a quiz, all right? So just ask yourself these, these questions. What, what does my life tell me about what I really believe? Answer these questions just in your own soul and answer as honestly as you can. Do you believe that God answers prayer, yet you can't remember the last time that you prayed? Do you believe that all people are created in God's image, yet you treat people like trash, making fun of them, judging them, gossiping about them, and tearing them down? Do you believe that unbelievers are in bondage to sin and in need of Jesus, yet you still mock them to score some political points? Do you believe that God calls us to holiness, yet you continue to run to that secret sin? Do you believe that God's word is sufficient and it's powerful enough to equip you and sanctify you, yet you only open it on Sundays and if you're honest, you would rather just scroll Facebook? Do you believe that Christ is the only true source of satisfaction, yet you continually run to money, sex, hobbies, recreation, fitness, you name it, for satisfaction? Do you believe that the church is the unique place where God meets with his people, yet you still show up dull and distracted, if at all? Do you believe that people need Christ and without him they die and go to hell, yet you never say a word about him to anyone? Do you believe we are called to the mission of Christ to go to the nations, yet you never leverage your time, your resources, or finances toward that end? Listen, it's one thing to say you believe something, and it's quite another thing to actually live it. And that's the point God is making to his people. And the way the passage ends, in verse 17, God punishes disobedience. The people of Judah, he promises disaster, and it's going to come. I told you, the exile hadn't happened yet, it's coming. So God punishes disobedience, but then we also see in verses 18 and 19 that God honors commitment and obedience. He honors commitment and obedience, and that's really where the good news of the gospel breaks in. We see the good news of Christ in that statement that God honors commitment and obedience. But there's a real problem for us and it affects every single person in this room. You and I are incapable of perfect commitment and obedience. We're incapable. In fact, that's what the book of Romans says, that we all, every single one of us, fall short. <laughs> we all fall short of perfect commitment, perfect obedience to his standard, his ways. In fact, that's the definition of sin. Sin is just missing the mark of God's standard. And we all fall short. And so that's a problem because verse 17 in chapter 35 just told us that God punishes disobedience. He promises disaster. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us, he says, for the wages or the punishment, the payment for sin is death. That's what every single person in this room has deserved because we can't keep perfect commitment, perfect obedience to the things of God. But Romans 6.23 goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is where the good news comes in. Christ is our perfect replacement. He lived a perfect life that you and I couldn't live. Never once sinned. Walked this earth for 33 years. Never once sinned. Lived a perfect life. He was perfectly faithful to the things of God. Perfectly committed. Perfectly obedient. And so whenever he goes to the cross... And he is that perfect sacrificial lamb that is slaughtered on the cross for our sins. He becomes the, the atoning sacrifice for us. And in that moment, what's happening 
is what's yours becomes his, what's his becomes yours. Your disobedience, your unfaithfulness is placed on Christ on the cross and he dies for it. And when he does, his perfect obedience, his perfect commitment, his perfect faithfulness is placed in you. It's imputed to you. This is the the good news. He places it in you if you simply ask for it. That's the only requirement. It's just faith. Ask the Lord, God, I'm placing myself under the blood of Jesus because I realize I am disobedient. I am not committed to the things of God. Only Christ has done that. I need him to be my replacement. And so when you do that, you place your trust in him. Scripture says you are saved. And then what happens is he places his spirit inside of you and begins to transform you from the inside out. And so let me be explicitly clear on this conversation. God's primary concern is not with how well you keep the rules. His primary concern is not how well you keep the rules. His primary concern is about commitment to him, right? And so the things that you do or the things that you don't do, those don't save you. And so you might be sitting there going, yeah, I don't drink the wine, I don't do the thing. I I do this list of things. I go to church. I'm there all the time. I read my Bible. I serve in Kidman. I do these things. If it's just a checklist of things to either impress other people or, or try to win the favor of God, and it's not out of a response to what he's done for you, the book of James tells you that that is false salvation. That's not real. The things that you do for the Lord do not save you. Only a result, uh, only a real relationship with Jesus results in salvation. Faith in Christ is the only thing that saves you. But it's then, when you realize your great need for him, and you place yourself under the blood of Jesus, ask him to save you, it's then he places his Holy Spirit inside of you, begins to transform you from the inside out, and that's where the actions come from. So don't get it twisted. The actions don't save you. You're saved, which leads to actions. It leads to following Christ. So this is not what you might call easy believism. Easy believism has run rampant, especially in the Bible Belt. It's permeated our culture to the point where where easy believism just says, pray this prayer, we'll dunk you in some water, and then it doesn't really matter how you live the rest of your life. You're good. Just go about it. That's easy believism. And Paul and James would say that's not real, authentic, saving faith. They would say there will be evidence through your life for what's happened on the inside. It always happens in that order. So let me, let me also <laughs> just share with you that this, this transformation that begins to happen on the inside through the Holy Spirit is a, it's a process it's a, it's a term that you might know called sanctification. And what sanctification is, is it's learning and it's working to just close the gap between what you say you believe and how you live. Because we all have this gap. And so sanctification is this process, this journey that every single Christian is on where we're going, look, I'm not where I wanna be, but every day I'm trying to get closer. And I'm closing this gap. Even the great apostle Paul, who wrote over a third of the New Testament, even he said, there's things that I struggle with. There's things I do in my life that I hate. 
There's things I do that I wish I didn't do. He says in Romans 7, 15, for I, I, I don't understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. <laughs> do you see it? So we're not talking about perfection of rules here. We're talking about commitment to the Lord. And so Christian, you're not gonna get everything right. God knows that and he extends grace. I'll remind you of our discussion last week on the new covenant where he did everything that you needed to happen and it was forever and it's final. That's what he's, that's what he's done for you. Christ's work is, is, is final for you, not contingent upon the things that you do for him. So we're gonna stumble our way through the gates of heaven. That's just the reality, but we should be taking steps to continually close that gap between what we say and what we do. We're taking steps, and it's a journey, and we're on it together. That's why, that's why Christ gave us the church. You realize that? Because we need brothers and sisters coming alongside us, linking arms with us and saying, listen, we're gonna walk this straight line together. And if you fall, I'm gonna pick you up. I'm gonna do the same for you. That's why you need community. That's why small groups are so important. I always talk about you need a small group. You need a, a group of people who you are intimately known by. You can share your struggles. You can share your shortcomings. You can share the areas where you're not faithful to the Lord and they can link arms with you and walk beside you. Because it's my prayer for us as a church here at Second Baptist in Greenbrier, Arkansas, that we would be a people that are so committed to the ways of God that God would be able to point at us just like he did the Rechabites and say it is possible to live a life of principle and conviction just look at those people a second. That's my, that's my prayer for us. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.